Hello and welcome to the Seven Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. Uh, welcome back. It's been a bit of time. Oh, life's busy at the moment. Sorry, I've not, I've not had as much time to record these, which is a shame because I love doing them. Um, this time uh, I'm speaking to a guy called James Robinson. So I was actually put onto James uh, by Martin Gott, uh, maker of St. James, who we spoke to a couple of months ago now on the Seliman podcast. Um, James is an organic dairy farmer up in Cumbria. Um, he is uh, at JR from Strictly, Strictly spelt uh, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y, JR from Strictly. And he, the way he farms is very much a kind of a symbiotic relationship with nature. It seems that, that the wild the wild world around his farm is as important to him as, as the farm itself. And in fact, the two uh, interact with one another in, in a really interesting and quite inspiring way. Um, I just wanted to speak to James really just to get his take on on why he does things the way he does and and perhaps the responsibility of dairy farmers to paint a different picture from from you know big bad dairy that we see off so often in the media um, and and I just wanted to speak to the man who does what I think is a really wonderful job in a really inspiring and beautiful place um, so here he is from the man himself James Robinson well, I suppose I could start at where I'm sat now, actually. Um, so we've just this morning we've been building a building some wall gaps up uh, on some land that we bought two years ago. It's in a bit of a bad state, a lot of the land, so we're trying to bring it round and um, just trying to sort of make it more strictly fied, as it were, really. You know, which is something that we've um, we're sort of passionate about, really. Just trying to um, trying to maintain ancient boundaries um, that are there for a reason, um, you know, and, and once they're gone, they can take a lifetime to get back. So it's, it's very easy to, to sort of lose the ancient boundaries. So we've been, we've been rebuilding some old walls this morning, some old gaps and stuff up. Um, and then just now, just after, after my dinner, I come down to sit by our pond. So um, I'm sat on the dipping platform, which we use for when we have school visits, pond dipping platform. And I say a pond, it's quite big, it's more of a tan really, it's about two acres of water, I think. And um, yeah, it's a it's a body spot, you know, it's a nice spot to sit, There's, uh, whether you can hear or not in the background. Just before you called, I've just actually set up a, um, a trail cam, you know, a mm. camera trap. Uh, and I will actually show you the video, I'll, I'll send you the video of what we got there last time it was set up. Of, of some otters so um yeah Amazing. we're lucky that they do sort of visit us occasionally and if i sit here long enough i'll see a kingfisher fly past because quite oh, often amazing. does um there's a couple of swan on there now which don't they don't nest on here but they do regularly visit part of the reason well part of why you where you're sitting is is i guess to me quite important is it was an image that's quite captivating from your from your instagram actually of of the same tarn but what was it, 30 years ago, maybe? Yeah, so where I'm sat now, uh, exactly this, this spot, it wasn't there before, it was just a field. You know, it was, it was just, a, just a part of the uh, existing pasture uh, that, that borders it now. And um, this part of the farm was bought by my granddad in the late 60s, was it 67 or something like that. And uh, it was just a bit of pasture, nothing fancy. So then fast forward 20 years to sort of late 80s and he fancied uh, this spot had been always quite wet so a lot of uh, other reshes or smooth rushes is proper name and um, but not not much else it wouldn't have much farming where I had very little farming value and not much wildlife value as it as it was so um, he just fancied digging a pond so um, got me um, granddad's cousin who was a uh, he had a lot of plant machinery and stuff he just came with a big bulldozer a few diggers and within a week They'd, they'd sort of sculpted a, an area that would hold water. 
with a couple of islands on. And then, um, and then fast forward another 30 years and it's matured now to, to where I'm sat now. And it looks, it honestly looks like it's been here for eternity. You know, it's, it's just so sort of uh, uh, mellowed into the landscape. That's an interesting phrase as well, that kind of mellowed into the landscape. Because is that, I, I'm sort of taken with a lot of what you do. There's sort of words that you hear thrown around about rewilding and but but then another word which i find more attractive in a sense which is sort of agri-wilding which is this idea of you know a more kind of symbiotic relationship rather than just giving over half your farm to just making it wild you know it, where i mean where are you sort of sitting in that kind of spectrum if you like well i think i think rewilding has become such a poisonous word because it's been used by people that are vastly opposed to any sort of animal agriculture or any any sort of modern agriculture really is probably the better thing isn't it um which is wrong you know you can't if, if you wanting to if you wanting to succeed in in uh, in enhancing uh, wildlife in this country um you know both maintaining and and improving uh then you can't alienate 70 percent of your uh, of your land mass which is what they're doing by saying rewilding Mm. Um, so farmers, you know, farmers own and maintain and, and, and look after seventy percent of the land. So immediately, you've alienated them. You've really got to keep land, uh, landowners and farmers on your side if you want in any sort of progress at all. And um, and this, you know, yeah, rewilding is just such a poisonous word. So um, I think if anyone mentions <laughs> mentions that, it's it's immediately. Um, it's immediately off-putting. I've had some pretty strong reactions to that word, which is why I like to drop it in just to see how someone responds. <laughs> <laughs> throw, throw the grenade in and then step back. Yeah, but I mean, it's sort of, but to me, it means nothing because it's, it's, mm. it's nonsense. It, it, isn't, it isn't achievable and it's, and it's a waste of anyone's time and effort to sort of say we're going to rewild this and that. So um, everything has to be managed to some extent anyways. And if you can manage land and wildlife together you have family land and wildlife together and you can grow food and have wildlife sitting side by side well that's uh, that's got to be far better than than just solely rewilding well and i suppose that thing is that nature doesn't really respect boundaries and actually if what you're doing you know with a sort of well it's funny you say modern farming because modern farming is i'm i'm personally sort of trying to uh, define what that means because the sort of people who are coming into farming and people who are doing what appears to be from your point of view quite revolutionary are perhaps re sort of reinvigorating practices that are in fact quite ancient um, so working with nature rather than just trying to block it out and control it and draw a big old line in the sand and say, well, this is my farm and that's nature and never the twain shall, shall meet, if you like. I mean, you, I mean, you, you can't defeat nature. <laughs> nature will always no. find its way back in. And, you know, and, and when I'm saying nature, I'm not talking about all the nice nature. I'm talking about the, the stuff that as a, as a farmer would, would potentially cause problems, you know, weather or, um, or wetland or, you know, um, or you have, if, 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 even the topography of the land, you know, it's steep, so you can't, you know, you've, you've, you've got a family what you've, what type of land you've got, you've, um, you know, you've got to respect all, um, you've got to respect all the decisions that are made before you as well, so all the people that, that, that did something at a previous point on your land, be it plant a hedge or dig a drain or, or fell a wood or whatever it might have been, for good or bad, they did it for a particular reason and the majority of that time would have been the market forces or advice that they were given. So we can't decry um, what, what they were doing then. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to sort of sit here and, and, and say that, 
a lot of what was done was wrong, but um, from the, the landowner and the, and the fam, fam, farmers of the time, they, they were doing what they thought was right, you know, and, mm. and what was needed. So And not making those decisions lightly as well. I think there is, a, an e- you know, an easy route to just vilify, actually not just in farming, but in many walks of life, vilify what came before as being, you know, out, out, outmoded and idiotic. But actually, as you say, every, every decision is made sensibly with what you know what you have on hand i mean i suppose what what's what's kind of persuading you is it just observation of the world around you or 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 specific influences that are that persuades you to to move towards this more kind of symbiotic relationship with the with nature around you our our farm has always been if you if you could design a farm you wouldn't design a farm like ours to farm because it is an awkward, you know, it's awkward. It's long and narrow, and it's uh, and it's sort of layout because we've bought um, there's three and a half farms or three and a half former farms that now make up what is strictly. Now we're still only three hundred acres. We're not massive, um, but um, it's long and narrow. There's there's a couple of becks running through it. Uh, it's very steep in places, very wet, quite exposed. You know, so there's all and and you've got all these small awkward fields. So you've got um, our average field size is about fifty, uh, about five acre. So we've got over 50 fields, you know, almost 60 fields that um, that make up strictly, and that that's the same. I think we've only lost five percent of our boundaries since 1851, and uh, for the land that we now farm at strictly. So there can't be many farms that sort of have that. When, when I say boundaries, I'm I'm talking about traditional boundaries. I'm not talking about it's been taken out and a, and a wire fence put in. Mm. I'm talking about a dry stone wall or a, or a an ancient hedgerow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're quite well. We are very lucky, I think, to have that as a starting point for the way we want to farm now. Um, and then, if you go back to um, where are we at? Just after, yeah, probably about two thousand four or five, we made a decision that we wanted to convert to organic. It was either it was either go down the organic route or push on harder to get more out the cows, more out the land, more out the farm. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and really, really increase yields and everything you know, grass growth and, 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 uh, and cow yields and, and keep more cows on, which would have meant pushing the land harder, uh, growing things like maize and what have you to try and get that extra milk out of the cows. And maize is, you know, it's an awful crop really when um, it's for the damage it does to the ground. Uh, but it's a very good crop for feeding milk cows and getting them to milk. So we, 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 we looked at that, you know, and we looked at the economics of that and, we, and it wasn't much different really to if we converted to organic in terms of the income for the farm um, and converting to organic was a much more appealing view really mm-hmm. um, given that the way we wanted uh, given the, the way our farm was laid out as well you know it's it is like I say it's an awkward farm to try and run 300 cows on our farm and buy a lot of feed in and grow maize it, it would it would ruin it really that awkwardness do you think that just predispose the land to be used in a certain way you know you say those ancient boundaries are still there well do you think is that because it wasn't the sort of farm where you'd want to expand the field size because it was already quite awkward anyway so just leave them where they are and and, and if you look at a boundary every single boundary that's laid out across the whole of the country and and there's not many left in a lot of places you know down the sort of on the east and stuff but for what there is around here there's you know there's quite a big chunk of the original boundaries left every boundary has been sort of put there for a reason it's uh it's there to um 
to divide like a what we would call like a meadow, like a mowing field for, for hay or silage to to one that can only be grazed because it's too steep or too wet. You've got wet areas on the bottom that tend to be fenced off separate to the to the others. Um, you've got areas that are, that are, are accessed through to, to becks for watering. So every every field has a way through that you can get to water without having to go through um, another grazing field and stuff. You've got areas that you can crop as well when i'm saying crop it's probably oats and things as it would have been a few hundred years ago but um, you know this is the better ground perhaps on top of a hill that they can grow oats on and things so every field is laid out for a particular reason none of it is random you know and, and when you start to read the land and you can sort of see why why they've put that hedge on top of that hill there right across the middle of it rather than partway down the bank and stuff so um yeah when you start to look around it is um it is amazing really to think of the of the uh, choices and decisions that were originally made hundreds if not thousands of years ago in, in some yeah. cases those boundaries probably existed in one way or another prior to those walls going up even you know yeah the, i think a lot of our boundaries around strictly would have been around um probably just after roman times a lot of it uh, a lot of the hedges and stuff were put in in roman times and uh and then you get further up onto our um allotment land and that's um and that is um the from the enclosure act from the 1800s so that them walls are dead straight so they've they're a lot more modern they're only like you know 200 year old whereas these down at home they tend to be a lot more wiggly around the edges of, of the uh, of, of the hills and stuff so um yeah it is amazing just to sort of just look at a boundary and just think well why is that there rather than 10 yards up there up the hill or whatever i mean it reminds me a little bit of a conversation i had with um i don't know if you know tim williams um kiwi uh goes by the pasture geek he's a sort of regenerative uh farming consultant based down in cornwall now actually um and and it 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 was the way he described this idea of regenerative agriculture in that actually there isn't a model. There isn't actually a model for regenerative agriculture. You have to respond to the place you're in. You know, you have to effectively try and work with what's there and find the best way, the most sort of integrated way to work in that environment. And actually, that's sort of what you're describing as well, that, that you know, Roman farmers looking at a setup and going, well, OK, how do we best integrate ourselves into this environment rather than how do we best control it to our own ends you can only farm with the land that you've got you can't try i mean I, yeah I, I used to always look in the in in, in all or really at these big flat fields down in um you know down on the east side or whatever and, and all the deep soils you know they've got soil forevermore over there and never seems to rain and everything seems grossy and then you come back home and everything was wet and shitty and and uh, and 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 thin soils you know we've got like about seven eight seven eight inches of soil and that's it and then you're into subsoil or rock here we're steep we're wet all these awkward little fields that when i was young and especially going to like college and stuff and i i, I used to hear thinking well, why you know why can't we have these big easy to manage uh fields and and then and then now you see the the complete opposite now in, in my eyes is, is the you know I, I, I hate to look at these big open flat fields uh, where it doesn't rain where you know it's, everything's dull and boring and flat we've got so much life around this farm now with all the hedges um, the becks uh, and the woods and the pond and you know it, it is it is just a just like a web of life really around strictly at the moment and, and, I, and I would I would hate to be a farmer anywhere else than here really but part of what you do as well is is you bring people onto the farm I mean I've seen quite a bit that you do with local schools and things like that how how important is it that that I suppose the next generation have a different view on farming because I'm assuming when you went to college 
you know that it was quite a different different sort of lessons you were learning compared to the sort of practice that you have now it is yeah very much i mean when um we're, i remember we we're talking about i was talking to, to someone about this in the day actually um we were doing about milk yields and what have you and what an average average yield should be this is in running college in 1992 three i think it was and uh and I think they were saying at the time, you know, you well, you should be really achieving sort of eight thousand from from a Holstein herd, and then they they asked me what we were, what our cows were giving at the time. We're doing just under the five thousand liters of cow, uh, and I got laughed at by the entire class, you know, because because it was such a poor yield, and 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 I, and it made me feel like tiny, you know, the fact that everyone everyone thought it was hilarious how how little milk our cows were giving, and yet. I bet half that class now aren't farming, <laughs> you know. Mm. So, you know, and and yet we're still going. We're still profitable every year. We're still making a profit every year. The way we the way we are farming now, uh, and anyone that's farming and still been able to make a profit can't be doing something too bad. Uh, but now our cows are giving more milk. You know, they're giving about seven thousand. But the average yield of a Holstein herd now is getting you know nine or ten thousand. Mm. And if you're housed inside, fully housed inside on three times a day milking, you should be doing eleven or twelve thousand. So it's you know. Yields have just skyrocketed in in uh, you know in the last twenty five years. But the implications of that are are so disturbing, really. When you know when you examine why why they're able to produce that much, and and I think in the last probably the last five years, maybe even the last three years, the the sort of the plant based lobby, if you want to call them that, has become much more vocal. And in a sense, to the point where dairy and cheese making has had to take a good hard look at itself. And think, well, is some of what they're saying, is it actually right? We can't just dismiss it out of hand, partly because the market forces demand a certain amount of examination of how things are done. But it, it it's forcing dairy and cheese to look at, you know, these sort of big grain fed animals that are there to to pump out milk and uh, you know and that's and that's sort of it there's no quality of life and then actually the way the, the their feed is produced is detrimental to the environment fundamentally so it, would you would you like to see a future where there are sort of more of your type so perhaps smaller integrated with nature style farming producing quality milk rather than just pumping out you know terrifying literage every every year yeah yes as long as the market can support it and sustain it because it's only ever a farm could only ever farm like we do or or anyone else that's trying to do their 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 best for the for nature and the environment they can only do that if it's if the farm is profitable number one you know if it's Mm. if if you're not making any money then it's very easy for for the next door farm that cuts four or five times a year you know the grass fully housed cow system 10,000 liters they they could soon take over your farm and do exactly the same there so you know each each um, each farm has to be profitable in its own right to start with and and that comes down to the returns and if if the if the public demand that in the way that they shop you know and they and they source out the more you know the organic milk or the um, um, pasture fed milk or the grazed milk whatever it might be uh, then you know th- th- then the, then there'll be a future in it and and I think it is it is the only way that uh, dairy farming is going to be sustainable long term. I think. So is that part of what you do then? In a sense, is that you're you're ad- you're an advocate as well. You're a farmer and an advocate. So you are you are introducing this next generation to a different way of doing things, but also 
being open about the way you farm and and you know creating a, a positive image of dairy yeah i think that's what i've always tried to i mean i've been on social media twitter mainly for five years now i think um and and over that time there's 20 thousand people now follow me on twitter and and they and they just love to see what we do is like a bit of a window into a into a life less ordinary for a lot of people really they don't have a clue what happens on a dairy farm mm. so if we're going to be try, quite truthful about what we do and the way that we farm you know and, and i do show the bad stuff i show the good stuff and the bad stuff but i also show not just the not just the you know the cows they sometimes get a daily a daily dose of me walking the cows you know whatever um but if 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 i'm doing that i also show the other stuff we're doing so i show that you know we might be planting some trees or doing some hedge laying or walling Mm. Or, 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 or you know, or whatever it might be, I just try and show our daily life. We show the just show what goes into creating that pint of milk that they buy from the supermarket, you know, and, and the amount of work that goes into that really, because um, it's easy to it's easy to, to forget and ignore really the amount of uh, hours and toil that goes mm. into producing milk really. So it's just to sort of give it a bit of value, and that value might not necessarily be a, be like a monetary value. It's just a bit more sort of respect when they're when they're lifting it off the shelf really. But I think that's the challenge, isn't it? Not just in your sector, but in, in you know, cheese and in meat as well. And, and in good food in general is this idea of, uh, of value, I suppose, rather than cost. So, you know, what, what is the actual cost of, of heavily processed, you know, farm, you know, fa factory farm produced product versus perhaps a slightly more expensive, but much higher nutrient value, environmental value. I think that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, we're... We have um, we have dairy short horns on our on our farm, so that's sort of a bit unusual to start. So our our, our cows aren't giving anywhere near the amount of yields that a fully house Holstein system would, but they also are very easy to manage, you know. So they look after themselves. They've got great fertility, great feet and legs, which is very important for for ours because they've got to walk, mm. they've got to walk a couple of mile a day sometimes to, for, for grass our cows. So we've got so we've got an easy to manage herd, but then that then frees up time that we can then spend on doing hedge laying. Um, building wall gaps so just trying to look after the land and the landscape a bit better so ha having having a, a lower yielding easy to manage cow on an organic system has really freed up a lot more time for us to be able to look after everything else now if, if we were fully housed and our cows are in full time you're constantly working with them you're constantly doing the feet or whatever it might be you know so there's always there's always more management that you've got to spend on them and more management time so um yeah having the having an easy to manage organic cow has freed up a lot more time that we can then spend on everything else, which then means that we can look after the environment a bit better, right? Is that something as well that is potentially attractive for other farmers that are perhaps, you know, currently in that more sort of intensive Holstein Friesian housed model and, and you know, highlighting the fact that because you choose to spend your, your the time that you, you sort of earn, if you like, from having your system to improve the environment that you live in but that also frees up time for potentially pursuing other avenues within your business as well be it i mean you know however you want to diversify your farm effectively um is that something that's attractive perhaps to other farmers it is but a lot a lot of people have, have got you know they've set off down that route and, and you get down that route with you know with building infrastructure and with machinery and, and investment in cows and, and like the breeding of the cows as well and you can't just suddenly you know, stop feeding a twelve thousand litre cow and 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 uh, and and hope it gives less milk, which then makes it easier to manage. Because it doesn't work like that. The breeding mm -hmm. has gone so far down that line that it's you know it's 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 a it takes a long. It's like you know steering a 
uh, trying to turn an oil tank around. You know, it's yeah. a big old thing to sort of move around again. And then, you know, like I said, they've got, they've got all the borrowing on the builders and the machinery. It is very hard to suddenly. I mean, I think the thing that illustrates that perfectly is you posted about you, you, were, you were planting a hedgerow and it was something like in, in, what, 20 years we'll lay this hedge and then in 50 years it'll, it'll look like it's been there forever. You know, and you think, gosh, that's that's farming, isn't it? You're not doing things month by month. It's long term. It is. It is a long term game, is farming, and and you've always got to, you you've always got to just try and improve things for the next generation. And whether that next generation is is you or it's someone else, you know, is, is your family or it's someone else's, um, you know. But we're always farming for farming for the future. So hedge is a really good illustration of that because, especially like a new hedge. So you plant it this year you lay it in 20 years and like i say in 50 years it looks like it's been there forever once it's been laid for like a second time so we're we're laying hedges in in like generations really, you know so um dad's sort of doing a round of hedging now um well this, this this coming winter and he'll never do those hedges that he's laying now he'll never work on them again you know because he's uh he's early 70s now and uh, i'll probably lay them once more in my lifetime when that's it so it's very hard for people to sort of comprehend how you can prepare something for 20 25 years time that you might never ever see again like when we're when we're hedging when we're hedge laying we're always thinking about well we've got to we've got to do it right and as good as we can this time because if we make a mess of it this time it, it's really hard to try and lay it next time so you know it's uh, and that, that next time is 20 25 years so it's um yeah you've always got to be thinking so far ahead so you have to have a huge amount of faith in the in your process in a sense yeah you? Oh, you do you do and farmers are often seen to be quite pessimistic and negative but in reality, you're the most optimistic. So we're, we're doing things and, and we, we're assuming, we're hoping that, uh, that in 20, 25 years, it's still going to be a business of agriculture, whether that's us or someone else running it, you know, that, that it'll be there for them. So, yeah, I mean, you don't get much more optimism than 25 years ahead. Like, Is that quite hard to maintain in the face of things like, I mean, I don't know how you've been affected by you know, the pandemic initially, but then also all the talks around the agricultural bill and Brexit and, you know, the the general instability that everybody's feeling at the moment how have you been affected by that covid nothing changed at all we've still got to milk the cows twice a day we've still got to lay hedges we've still got to you know get silage in for the following winter everything's all the same mm. um in terms of agriculture bill and looking forward there's been so many different noises coming out of the job that it's hard you know well you, you can't make a decision based on information that is so foggy and um and mixed up so you've really just got to keep farming the best way you can with what you've got um it's looking like obviously like um direct payments going to be coming off and we're going to end up with with elms or something like elms which is environmental land management scheme um which if it works i think elms is going to be fantastic for a farm like ours because it's uh, i would think we're almost a model farm for what they want to sort of see i mean obviously there's masses of stuff we can we can improve as a good base it's a good thing for them uh, for, what, for what they're wanting just to elaborate on what you've you're talking about there because i'm i'm a farming layman and and a lot of people who listen to this won't necessarily know anything about elms just just to sort of highlight the major difference there's been for the last forever there's been direct payments to farmers and it used to be it used to be called subsidies um but uh, there hasn't been subsidies around for, for a long, long time, or 20 years, I think. So there's been direct payments, for, and you had to meet minimum environmental standards and, uh, and welfare standards and things on your farm um, to get a payment per hectare. 
Um, and that was um, that came from Europe. It was European money, really. Although I'm sure the UK gave loads more than what Europe ever gave back if you listen listen to people. Uh, but uh, and then that, that's getting phased out. So by 2027, there will be no direct payments at all for UK farmers, and any payments that farmers receive will be public money for public goods. Is the is the term that Michael Gove banded about um, five six years ago now. Uh, and that is going to be for Elm, so as environmental land management, and that will be paid for ev everything and everything, water quality, air quality, maintaining boundaries, um, improving boundaries, uh, woodland, all sorts of things. And then there's also public access and things like that. And then it's, it's how you value things like the landscape. So the landscape looks nice and pretty. It looks nice and pretty because a farmers made it look nice and pretty in the way that they've managed it. And is there a, is there a value on that? Um, mm. So it's a massive, massive, great big behemoth of a scheme. Originally, it's supposed to be all nice and simple, but it's turning into an absolute nightmare, I think. There's a lot of unquantifiables in there, aren't there? There's sort of things that you could instinctively respond to, but you can't measure the quality of the landscape. I mean, I'm sure someone will find a way. It's going to be very hard for them to put a figure on everything. And, 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 if, and, and they're going to have to put a figure on everything, on everything if they want to improve, you know, that's the... Um, there's you know farmers at the end of the day need to be profitable and if that profitability comes from managing the landscape in a certain way then they're going to have to know how much is going to they're going to get back from it so um yeah if, if it works i think elms the environmental land management scheme is going to work really well um but at the moment it's just so uncertain and we're not getting a lot of information back from um from the government about it so i mean i think it's it's going to be very interesting as you say for people like you who I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, you're not renegade per se, but you don't necessarily conform to the to the the recently traditional, if you like, model of dairy farmer. And, you know, from what you've said, part of that is to do with where you are and, and the farm you're on. But it's also, uh, you know, it's a mindset as well, isn't it? I think, you, you know, it's quite clear that, you know, those birds in the background that I can hear now and, and, and the tarn that you're sat next to is just very important to you on a personal level is that fair to say yeah oh, it's definitely yeah i think it i think it gives some sort of value to the way we're farming or, or, or to, to the way we farm um and and the work that we put in you know because you have some you know you have some real shitty days sometimes and you think why are we even bothering you know you've you've had you, know, you might have had a dead calf in the morning and then your best cow you thought was in calf instance and um and then all of, all of a sudden you might you might think you know, I ain't got enough size to get through winter whatever it might be there's there's always massive amounts of pressure on farming and farming um but then when you have an escape like me now sat on the edge of this pond and I can see a couple of swan at the at the top there messing around the reeds and stuff and there's various low birds flying around across the pond and stuff when you see when you have something like this it, you can just it, it brings you away from all the from all the um, all the sort of stress that you might get from 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 trying to farm mm. to um, to sort of sitting here and, and just being able to enjoy it a bit and just sort of shut away, you know, shut all the bad stuff away for a bit. So it it, it is massively valuable to our you know to farmers' mental health. I think really just to have a bit of nature to to look at. Yeah, that's an interesting point because that's obviously that is that is an issue within your industry and, and seems to be an issue a much harder issue than in many other industries actually and I guess the the reasons for that are, are quite clear it, you know in terms of 
financial pressures, but also it can be it does seem to be quite can be quite solitary uh, as as a, as a life, and that doesn't suit everybody. No, I think um, well, I don't think solitary. Uh, I don't think it suits anybody really. You know, uh, it's, people like to say they like to be on their own or whatever. But when you, you I mean, if you've got the pressures and then you're on your own, mm. it is it is very very hard really sometimes and. Uh, and then you know, and it is relentless as well. You know, you've always got to, you know, if it's your dairy farm, you know, you've always got to milk twice a day, whatever. You can't, you can't get away from that. So you've always got to get out of bed in the morning, and then you've always got to come home from your. If you're lucky enough to get away with your family, you've always got to come home and have a and and, and milk at the end of the day, mm-hmm. um, and that's every day. You know, Christmas Day, the the wettest November you've ever seen, or the hottest. June, you've always got to be, you always got to be there at the, um, you know, in, in in the parlour doing that milk and whatever. And then you've got, you know, and then for sheep farmers that have got the stresses of, of all the lambing time in bad weather and stuff. And then the, the, your your cereal, your, your arable farmers when they when they're getting the grain in and it's constantly wet and you know it's just the amount of pressure on primary food producers is just absolutely phenomenal, really. So there we go, that was James Robinson there from Strictly, uh, the organic dairy farmer up in Cumbria. Uh, Great to speak to James, great to hear someone so passionate about what they do, but about how what they do fits into kind of the wider environment really, and how that, I think it's an interesting thing that it doesn't just sit alongside, the two are incorporated one into the other, and it feels like a very, um, well on one level attractive, but also practical way of doing things. Um, also interesting to hear how his farming style is very much shaped by the place and how he kind of lets take nature take the lead. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing from James. I really enjoy following him on Instagram, JR from Strictly. Uh, that's Strictly, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-E-Y. Do follow him, uh, just if nothing else, for a bit of escapism. Um, but James is full of wisdom and full of knowledge and, and, and yeah, really enjoyed speaking to him. Cheers, James. So look, Uh, Next time, uh, we will be back in the world of cheese with one of our, probably one of our best-known farmhouse cheesemakers. But I look forward to seeing you then for The Cellarman Podcast. The Cellarman Podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Cellarman, go to Cellarman Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website, cellarman.co.uk. Cheers.